Good evening and welcome to Crosspoint, our midweek fellowship and our continuation of studying the Holy Spirit. Um, tonight I'm going to be, oh, there we go, <laughs> uh, about to read to you guys from the Bible, book of John, chapter 16, uh, verses 4 through 15. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me. Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son and, and making the greatest sacrifice of all time for our sake so that we might become your righteousness. Father, I thank you for giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit. I pray tonight that, that you would fill us all with truth and knowledge as Brad comes up to share with us more um, just knowledge and truth in, in your word. I pray that you would speak through him and just strengthen us and embolden us to be more efficient in advancing your gospel and glorifying you in all that we do. And I thank you for your son again in whose name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Teddy. Good evening, everybody. All right, if you don't have a handout, um, <clears throat> maybe somebody in the back can grab a handout. Anybody that's coming in in the back that I, can, that I know I can kind of grab some back there. Who is it? Ed Moore is going back to grab handouts. Everybody's got them. Anybody need one? Ed, don't, don't sit down too soon. Okay, we got one down here. There's none left. Okay, I'm sorry. Maybe you can share... I'm sorry. <laughs> you have an, somebody's got an extra, so thank you. Chesco, Dryden's, okay. Sorry about that, guys. I'll print more. Okay. Oh, some of you have three or four. All right. Uh, okay. Hoarding, I believe, is the... the no, I'd have, you'd have to go on my... It'd take too long to get... Oh, you can... No, I think we got, we got enough. I think we're good. Um, unless you want to just grab one and make some copies. That'd be good. Yeah. Oh, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Thank you, Stokes. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I forgot that copiers can actually make copies, not just from your computer. I forget. Yeah. Sorry. Thank you, Stokes. It's a little slow today. Um, all right. <clears throat> well, um, we are in our fifth of a six-week series looking at the, the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And tonight, we're going to drill down on, I think it's going to be a two-part tonight and then next Wednesday, which will be our last 
week in this block of the study of the Holy Spirit. We'll spend a lot of time talking about the gifts of the Spirit and the specific, what they are and how they operate and what different Christians believe about whether or not they're still available. Um, So we may not get through all of this tonight. In fact, I was being mocked by certain people in the office today about the lack of likelihood of me actually making it through the outline today. We'll see. Um, but, but if we don't make it through, we will pick it up next week because this is going to be a bit of a continuation next week. So by way of review, um, we just want to remember that last week we talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about what that is theologically. And we covered the two main views. Uh, just bear, by, very quick, this will be on the internet and the, the video and the audio will be on the internet soon, I think, if you want a fuller explanation of this, if you weren't here last week. But there are basically two views. One view is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a phrase that happens um, about seven times in the Bible, usually in the Gospels promising that this would be a component of Jesus' ministry, that he would baptize you in the Holy Spirit, One view holds that it is a second experience of grace after salvation, and it is something that in particular uh, empowers a Christian for evangelism and service. Stokes is coming with some more copies that he made really quickly, by the way. Oh, Robert was, okay, well, good. I was going to say that was a quick, yeah. Um, So the second view holds that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second experience after salvation, and that most people that believe in this second experience view, got a couple hands over here, um, up, believe that this gift, this second experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is marked by the initial evidence of speaking in tongues. And so that's most of the Pentecostal world and much of people that would believe that would, would be really intentionally pursuing this gift as a marker of the second experience. We talked about last week how I think biblically that is an incorrect view, although many well-meaning, well-intended, fruitful, godly people believe that. I think a better understanding of what's going on in the New Testament is the view that the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens at conversion, that all Christians are baptized by the Holy Spirit into, they're regenerated, they're baptized into the body of Christ, that conversion. I think that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says. But then when we look at the book of Acts, specifically in Acts 2, Acts 10, uh, Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19, what we're seeing is not a pattern, because in those four chapters in Acts, we do see this pattern where a person becomes a Christian or a group of people become Christians and then they experience this second experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that that is meant to be a personal pattern. I think that is God showing the early Jewish apostles that he's moving the gospel across ethnic lines to the Samaritans, then to the Romans, then to the Ephesian Greeks, and that it is meant to display or authenticate for these early Jewish Christian apostles that the gospel's for everybody. It's not meant to be a pattern for personal experience. So I think the biblical view is that all true Christians are baptized in the Holy Spirit. But we also settled on the fact that In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says that we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that word filled in the original Greek is a present imperative, meaning that we should continually be filled. And so uh, I think that Christians should 
seek to, to be filled afresh every day with the Holy Spirit. And we use the analogy of, of a balloon. And Bob Dunning very appropriately said that I was full of hot air. So that's why maybe it was good. I'm still kind of laughing at that one. But that the filling of the Holy Spirit, all Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. But Christian maturity is being more and more filled, more and more yielded over to the uh, to. the God in your life. That's just sanctification or Christian maturity. Okay, now then, Roman numeral, Roman numeral number two there, the Bible mentions specific spiritual gifts, and there are about four or five areas in the Bible that mentions these gifts, and we're going to work through just very quickly these lists, and then what we're going to spend our time on to, mostly tonight is we're going to look at two views. There are some Christians that believe that some of the spiritual gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament have ceased. And that is the theological position called cessationism, coming from the word ceased, right? And then there are other Christians that would believe that all of the gifts, certainly at least not all, let me, let me preface that, but most of the gifts, just about all of them, in the New Testament that are mentioned have continued, are still in operation today. And that's a wide group of people. They would be what we call continuationists. And there's lots of people that would fall in that camp and would have differing convictions about all sorts of things. So I'm painting with some broad brushes. But let's just, before we look at the arguments on either side, uh, because I've, I venture to say that just about everybody in this church you maybe came from a church. If you grew up in a church, if you didn't, that's fine. Don't feel like you're a second-class citizen at all. Maybe this is a church that you're growing up in or that you came to faith in. But maybe you came from, all of you, if you came from another church culture, came from a church that either believed and taught that the gifts were, have ceased, or at least some of them, or you believe that the gifts continue to this day. And, I, and this is not a knock at all. I'm just saying that you likely arrived at that position not because of any precise or thorough biblical teaching, but just because of the culture of the church, right? And so tonight, I want us to really look at what the scripture says. Now, this is a, a bit of a nuanced and um, not complicated, but it's a, it's an it's a bit of an unresolved theological area. There's not a whole, I mean, yes, there's clarity, but, but, but there's good arguments on both sides. And so I want us to know what the Bible says about this, okay? Not just sort of have, you know, our own presuppositions that we bring because of the culture of the church maybe that we grew up in or maybe because of some personal experience. So let's really look at what the Bible says, what the arguments are on each side, and then, then we'll move forward from there. And if we don't get through it all, we'll certainly uh, finish it up tomorrow, next uh, Wednesday night. So what are the spiritual gifts? Well, there are uh, several places in the New Testament where spiritual gifts are mentioned. 1 Corinthians 12, there are uh, the gift of the apostle, prophet, teacher, miracles, different kinds of healings, helps, administration, tongues. That's mentioned at the end of 1 Corinthians 12. Earlier in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10, these nine gifts are often the focus of a lot of the discussion, of uh, much of the discussion about the spiritual gifts. And we see word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, 
gifts of healing, miracles, prophecy, distinguishing or discerning of spirits, tongues, and the interpretation of those tongues. And at the end, if we have time, we will go a little bit more specifically as to what these are. If we don't get to that tonight, we definitely will next Wednesday night. Some of these are just obvious, like the gift of helps. I mean, let's not make these more complicated than they are. They're just people that are very helpful in a a whole wide variety of areas. The gift of administration or leadership. And some of these that you'll see, there's some overlap. They're not I think there's 22 that are mentioned here, but they're not all mutually exclusive. There's an overlap of of mentioning in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul speaks about gifts that that God gives to the church. Uh, Four or five. Apostle, these are offices. These are people gifts. These are actual offices that people hold. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, and then pastor and teacher. And most New Testament scholars would kind of group what Paul is saying about pastor-teacher as, as a together, that the pastor is a teacher, teachers, you know, shepherd through their teaching. So kind of grouping those together. If you want to split those up, that's fine as well. And then Romans 12, 6 through 8, prophecy, serving, teaching, encouraging, contributing, leadership. Again, obviously very similar to administration, mercy. And then what's not spoken of often is, is two gifts that Paul does mention as gifts in 1 Corinthians 7, the gift of marriage. So if you're married... That's a gift, and the gift of, of celibacy. And I think that, that, uh, I think that we need as a church to have a good doctrine of singleness and that some people will be called to celibacy so that they can give themselves wholeheartedly in a way that married people cannot to the work of the ministry. Okay, I know we blew through these and some of you were really interested to know what some of these things mean. We'll either get to that at the end or we'll handle it tomorrow night, or next Wednesday night. Several considerations about these spiritual gifts. These are not exhaustive lists. So don't think, oh man, I don't necessarily see anything that I'm good at. Well, you, you know, we, sh- we can all help. I mean, come on now. We can all have mercy. We can all contribute. We, so, so these apply, some of these apply, I think, to just about every Christian, but these are not, this is not meant to be an exhaustive list of all the ways that God has gifted his people. Another consideration, number two there, is that a spiritual gift that a person may have, even if they have a very high degree of a spiritual gift, does not necessarily, it's not necessarily indicative of spiritual maturity. Not necessarily. Then also notice that the majority of spiritual gifts are rather ordinary in nature. Yes, there are some that uh, are mentioned in the New Testament that tend to be categorized as more miraculous, something like miracles or maybe a gift of healing, something uh, maybe prophecy, tongues seem to be more miraculous occurrences of that in the New Testament. But notice that much of these things helps administration, teaching, encouraging, contributing, leadership, mercy. Uh, These are ordinary aspects of the Christian life. And notice also that spiritual gifts are for the building up of the church, not merely for personal spiritual edification. And then I want to say, before we get into this debate, or we look at each side as to what Christians believe about whether or not they're still operative or not, let's remember that, or or realize that all Christians believe that God still gifts his people. The debate is whether all are still operative. So maybe if you grew up in a really charismatic, Pentecostal-type culture, you may look down the end of your nose at people that believe that some of the gifts have ceased. You, you are 
viewing that group of people wrongly if you think that they think that God doesn't still gift his people or heal people or work miracles. No, as we'll see in a second, people that believe that some of the gifts have ceased are not saying that all these things are, are, are over with and not in operation anymore. They're just saying particular ones, and we'll look at those today. Many come to their point of view uh, merely as a result of their church culture rather than a study of the scriptures. And so I want us to be, as we see in Acts, I want us to be good Bereans. Remember Paul was preaching, I believe it was right after he took the gospel to the church at Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17 maybe, and he spoke to the Bereans and they searched the scriptures to see whether or not what Paul was saying was true. And so we want to be good students of the scripture. Okay, why, Roman numeral three, let's get into it. Why do some Christians believe that some of the gifts have ceased? And this is the cessationist point of view. Okay, let me pull this over in case I need to draw a little bit. Okay, these, well, actually, let me, I know you're getting dizzy. Let me keep it here. (laughs) That was confusing. Cessationists um, are people that believe that uh, some, not all, of the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. They would believe, certainly there are still teachers, but they would believe that the gift of of an apostle is no longer in operation today. They believe that the office or gift of prophet is no longer in operation today. They would, you know, it just depends. I mean, some would still believe that miracles and healings are, are in, in operation. They would believe that the gift of tongues is no longer in operation. Um, they would, let's just kind of paint with broader strokes, prophecy, um, tongues. Um, they would have varying opinions about words of wisdom and knowledge. Apostle, prophet, the gift of prophecy, um, they would say that these gifts, apostle, particularly the revelatory gifts, meaning spoken gifts, or the office of apostle, and gifts of prophecy and tongues have ceased. But I want you to notice that people that are in the theological camp of cessationism still believe that God still gifts people with a lot of these gifts. They don't believe that everything is past. Now, some more conservative ones would believe that God doesn't act in quite miraculous ways, and so we'll kind of maybe put a check by miracles um, and, and healing, but they would certainly pray for healing and believe that God still, but the, in a, in a uh, particularly poignant sort of way, like we see in the book of Acts and in the New Testament, they would say that God doesn't necessarily seem to be doing uh, those types of of gifts of healing and miracles today. And I think just empirically, we have to, uh, we, I think we kind of have to agree with that. I think that, that is certainly the case. But whether or not God still does that or not is open for debate. Okay, so why do some of them believe that the gifts have ceased? Well, one argument, and this is actually is, I think, the weakest argument. Um, and in fact, most people, most serious scholars that would hold to this position don't refer to this verse often, but they would refer to 1 Corinthians 13, some would, and let me read 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, which is this chapter sandwiched in between chapter 12 and 14, which is about the spiritual gifts and how they are to be ordered in the church in Corinth. And Paul says, verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So, okay, let's just pause there. What's going on here? Paul is taking two particular gifts 
in this instance, prophecy and knowledge. And he is saying in tongues, so there's three gifts there. He's saying that there is coming a time when they will cease, okay? When is that time? Well, he tells us in verse 10. He says, when the perfect comes, these things that are partial will pass away. And so uh, some people believe from the cessationist point of view that when this thing that is perfect comes, these temporary imperfect gifts of tongues and knowledge and prophecy will no longer be needed when the perfect thing comes. And they would interpret that perfect as the completion of the Bible, the, the, the collection of what we know of as the canon. Canon being a Latin word for measuring stick, meaning the word of God, okay? Um, now, not many scholars that even would hold a cessationist point of view, I think, hold to this view anymore, um, because I think, as we'll see in a second, um, I think that what is hap- what, what, what the perfect that's being referred to there is actually the return of Christ, okay? And so, again, that's not a real strong argument, but some people do hold to that. So that's one, that would be one argument. They would say, well, now that we have the Bible in completed form, um, we don't need these partial words anymore to help us along, which were necessary in the early church. Another verse that they would point to, and I think this is probably one of the stronger arguments, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, um, Paul is making an argument that um, he is saying, Ephesians 2, verse Uh, Let me just back up to verse 19, and then I'll read verse 20. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Okay, now I need you to follow me here. I am going to move the board on this. They are saying that the church is built on the foundation of Christ and the apostles and the prophets. So what are they saying there? They're not saying that Christ is in any way what the work, the work that Christ did is insufficient. That's not what the, Paul is saying here. He's saying that Christ's work established the church and now his work needs to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth for those that haven't heard. So there are two necessary foundations for the New Testament church. The work of Christ and then this group of people called the apostles and prophets that are now going to be the foundation of teaching the New Testament church about Jesus. And who are these apostles? These apostles are the 12 especially commissioned disciples of Jesus, right? The 12 disciples that have special one-time authority to begin the church and to write scripture. And so there is a correlation, and this nobody argues with this. In the Old Testament, you have the office of prophet, and through these prophets come the writing of the Old Testament. All these prophets are dead. They were especially commissioned by God with a special authority to bring God's word into being as we know it as in the Old Testament. 
in the New Testament, you have the corollary to the Old Testament prophets, and it is the apostles. So who are these apostles? They are the 12 uh, apostles, remember? So Judas falls off at the end, showing himself never to be a true believer. He is replaced by Matthias in Acts chapter 1. And so you have the 12 apostles, and then eventually Paul is added because he has a return visit from Jesus in Acts chapter 9. And then um, Barnabas is mentioned as an apostle later on. And then the half-brother of Jesus, James, also is mentioned as being an apostle. So you have 12, 13, 14, 15 men in the New Testament that are apostles. Now, apostles had to meet a very specific requirement. They had to be eyewitnesses. They had to be with Jesus and to be eyewitnesses of his resurrection, which the 12 and Barnabas and his half-brothers meet. And Paul, although he was not an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus right after his resurrection, got a return visit from the resurrected Jesus when he came back down from heaven in Acts chapter 9, knocked him off a horse, slapped him around a little bit and said, you're going to stop persecuting me and you're going to be my man, right? So Paul claims apostolic authority rightly because now he meets the apostolic qualification of uh, seeing the risen Jesus and being set apart and commissioned by Jesus as the 12 were. Every New Testament book, all 27 of them, come either through the hands of the apostles, they're written by the apostles, or they are written by one of the apostles' ministry associates, like close associates, like, for example, the book, the Gospel of Mark. Mark is not an apostle, but he is a, like the ministry associate of Peter. Luke is not an apostle, but he's the ministry associate of Paul, right? All the, other, um, all the other New Testament books are written by um, the apostles, including Jude, another um, closest half-brother of Jesus. So you've got all of the New Testament books being written by an apostle or their right-hand man. The only one that we don't know about as far as authorship is Hebrews, but it was certainly attested by an early church as being likely from a ministry associate of Paul, if not written by Paul. And so what's important is you see a correlation between the one-time authority of the prophets in the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament, okay? And those men are dead, all of them. They had a one special time authority to write scripture, and they are no longer with us. So if anybody claims to be an apostle... <laughs> run. Don't walk. Run. They are a heretic with a capital H. Okay? And what Paul is saying, back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, he's saying that the foundation, if you could put Ephesians 2, 20 back up there, he is saying that the foundation of the New Testament church is the apostles and prophets. And here's how the argument goes for people that would hold to a cessationist view. They would hold, they would see, just look there, the, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. They would see a link there. They're not saying that all of the prophets, whoever these people are in the New Testament, have this gift of prophecy, are apostles. But they see a linking together of this foundational one-time ministry. And people that would hold to a cessationist view would believe that the apostles and prophets had a one-time special 
commission and role in the New Testament church to write Scripture and then the prophets to explain and expound Scripture. And that since in Paul's thinking in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, those two groups of people are bound together, that their, their kind of significance in the church goes together. And since the apostles are dead and that gift of the gift of apostle is, has ceased, so has the office of prophet. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm not saying that's an airtight argument. I'm just saying that is probably one of the main arguments. They're grouping the function of apostles and prophets together. And they would say that the ministry of the New Testament prophets is akin, not, not exactly the same, but is akin to the ministry of Old Testament prophets. And so they would say, God used this specific group of people to write the Old Testament. They're dead. It was a one-time event in historical redemptive history. God used this group of people uh, commissioned by Jesus to write the New Testament scripture. They're dead, supported by the ministry of these prophets who were particularly inspired by God to help to teach and bring to bear God's teaching of the apostles as it was being collected in written form. And they're dead. And so the argument goes that that that. That has ceased, okay? Now, I want to make a point here, just one little point, is that even if you are dyed-in-the-wool Pentecostal, I mean dyed-in-the-wool Pentecostal, and you believe that all the gifts are still in operation, even the most ardent Pentecostal that reads their Bible has to, I think, admit that the office of apostle has certainly ceased. So in some sense, all Christians are cessationist, at least on this gift, right? Is it, you follow that? Because these people had authority to write scripture. When they said, thus saith the Lord, the spirit was working through them in a one-time, a special way in redemptive history. And so, I, you know, I'm, I hate to burst your bubble, all my Pentecostal friends, but all of us, I think, that read our Bibles are at least cessationists on that point. I love you. Okay, all right, <laughs> here we go. Okay, so Ephesians chapter 2 is, 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 a, is a huge... So let me just read my bullet points there. I hold that the authority of the Old Testament prophets and New Testament prophets is essentially the same and was a particular temporal... Notice I increased my font size here. Did you guys notice that? But I'm still struggling. The temporal authority given to only individual, certain individuals for canonical, meaning the compilation of the Bible, the canon purposes... They would hold that all that we need to know for salvation and sanctification has been given to us through the teaching of the apostles and the prophets, which again were one-time offices, now past, and we don't need any further words from God. And they would believe, and, specific, and they would also believe, because remember, that they would hold that the gift of tongues is no longer in operation. And they will say, well, why did you, if you, you might say, well, I see their argument up to this point, how maybe the gift of prophet, prophecy is no longer in operation because it was bound up with the apostles. And that's, but what about tongues? It's mentioned, well, they would hold that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 14, that tongues is very similar to prophecy in the purpose of the church because essentially a tongue that it comes with an interpretation essentially does the same thing for a church that the, a word of prophecy does. And so they would see interpreted tongues and prophecy as being very similar gifts. And they would say, well, since the word prophecy and prophets 
gift has passed away. There's really no need for tongues and interpretation of tongues either. And so they would hold that tongues, interpreted tongues are essentially equivalent to the prophecy, to prophecy in the New Testament. And since prophecy has ended, so have tongues, okay? So the argument goes according to their view of Ephesians 2, back chapter 20. I, 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 think that's a, I think it's a good argument. Lots of really, really, really smart people who I hold in very, very high esteem hold to this. And I think they hold to it somewhat, you know, humbly, but, uh, but it's a good argument. Then another major argument would be, number three there, is that the purpose of the miraculous gifts was to authenticate or to validate. Um, I, authenticate maybe wasn't the best word to use there, but all you Army guys know, Bob Rosa, remember, you'd have to authenticate the radio when you were talking. So but authenticate meaning to validate the validity uh, that was redundant, wasn't it? Um, validate the authenticity of the ministry of the apostles. And so God poured out these miracles through the hands of these apostles to give them sort of his heavenly stamp of approval that they weren't fakes. And I mentioned a bunch of um, uh, scriptures there in Acts. You can see, you can read. But let me just read um, Hebrews chapter 2 verses 1 through 4, which um, I think points us in the direction of this line of thought. Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, meaning Jesus, And it was attested to us by those who heard the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And essentially that's what is happening in all of those references in the book of Acts that I mentioned there, is that it seems like there's this cluster of miracles coming through the hands of the apostles to validate their authenticity as those especially commissioned by Jesus. Okay, so that's the third. So probably the two primary arguments for cessationism are points two and three. An understanding of what Paul means of the apostles and prophets in Ephesians 2 and the belief that we see that the apostles had a special power and that miracles were given to validate their ministry. And then four, I think we must also say, Although this is not a scriptural argument, I think this is probably one of the things that pushes a lot of people into cessationism, is that they react to the excesses and the errors and, quite frankly, much of the goofiness and silliness that you see in much of the continuationist Pentecostal charismatic world. And quite frankly, let's just be honest, even if you come from a charismatic or Pentecostal background and you hold to that, I think you have to own up to that. There is a whole lot of silly goofiness that comes from certain slivers of the church that is just in air, in excess, it's just ridiculous. And it causes some people to look at that and say, that's ridiculous. Now, I would say that I think that we need to come from scriptural grounds and not throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. But I think this is... um, this. Uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that this is the argument. I'm just saying that I think if you come from a Pentecostal or charismatic background and you hold, you really believe that that's what the Bible teaches, I think you need to own up to that people under the tent or umbrella of your shared the- 
perspective um, really do damage to the cause. The Word of Faith movement, much of TBN would fall into this category. People that just teach ridiculous things. Um, so just we need to factor that in as well. Okay, let me pause there. One question. Anybody who's got a burning question before we move on to the other view, the continuationist view, real quick. Tracking? Going once, going twice? Okay, I'm doing such an awesome job or you're bored out of your mind. Okay, let's go. The continuationist view on the back. So then, what do some Christians believe? Why do some Christians believe that the gifts continue? Okay, so this would be the view, the continuationist view. Um, Number one, just kind of responding to some of those things in the cessationist view. Well, looking back at 1 Corinthians 13, specifically verse 10, and I think that even if you're cessationist, I think many would concede that this is the right interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13. They would view that what is in view when Paul says the perfect, when the perfect comes, what's in view there is the return of Christ and not the completion of the Bible. We won't spend much time on that one. Then um, they would view uh, in number two there that they would argue that New Testament prophets are not quite like Old Testament prophets and that they have a lesser authority. In fact, an authority that is under the authority of certainly the preached word and the ministry of the leaders of the church. And so they would see that there is not a direct relationship between the authority. They would certainly, continuationists, most biblical continuationists would say certainly that the apostles have all died. But they would split off prophecy and prophets as a lesser gift not so joined with the apostles, but a lesser gift that is certainly under the authority of Scripture, that is still active in the church today, that is to be judged and weighed by the authority of the leaders in the church and the authority of Scripture. And so they would point to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 29. Let's put that up on the screen where Paul is making the argument about ordering prophetic words in the church. And he says... Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Well, as the argument goes from the continuationist perspective, is that Paul seems to be saying there that the church and the leaders of the church should sift out and weigh the validity of the prophecy being spoken, which you would never say about an Old Testament prophet or a New Testament apostle. They spoke as thus saith the Lord. And so their words were to not be weighed, but they were to be obeyed, okay? And so the, as the argument goes from the continuationist perspective, they're saying that clearly what Paul has in view here in 1 Corinthians 14, these prophetic words that were being uttered in the Corinthian church, were lesser than authoritative speech that could be wrong, which we would never say about the prophets or the apostles. Do you get, do you get what I'm saying there? Another verse that would, they would point to would be 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you can throw that up there. 1 Thessalonians 5, where it says Paul is exhorting the church, and he says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Well, implicit from the continuationist perspective is they would say, well, what? implicit in that argument seems to be if the church would, if he would have to encourage them not to despise prophecies, 
implicit in that is that maybe they had a bad attitude about all these prophets who were just going around saying stuff that wasn't necessarily always 100% correct. And so it was of a lesser authority than the ministry of the Old Testament prophets and the apostles. And then, um, is there one more? Yes, so then in Acts chapter 21, we won't take the time to read it. Um, uh, Well, actually, let me take the time to read that. Acts chapter 21, verse 10 through 14, we see this prophet. He's called the prophet. Um, Acts chapter 21, verses 10 through 14, I'm sorry. We see this prophet named Agabus, who has a prophetic word for Paul before he goes to Jerusalem. And he basically tells him, don't go to Jerusalem because this is what's going to happen to you. And Paul disobeys him. So in verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, I wonder kind of how that happened. I was thinking about that today. You just walk up to Paul, you like grab his belt. Like, what, what, are you, what are you doing, cat? And he, then he takes Paul's belt and bounds his own feet. Um, and hence he says, uh, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And so from the continuationist perspective, they're saying, here's this apostle Paul disobeying this word of this prophet. And by the way, if you get really nitty-gritty into it, when we read ahead in Acts chapter 23 and further on, we see that there was a little bit of discrepancy in actually what happened to Paul. Agabus was kind of right, but a little bit of wrong. And so the point is, is that Agabus, who's this prophet, is kind of mixed in his word. It's, It's mostly right, maybe a few details wrong. So it's not prophetically like an Old Testament prophet who's always right. And Paul disobeys him. And so they would point to that and say, see, that's more evidence that this New Testament gift of prophecy and office of prophet is below the authority that is mentioned that, that in the Old Testament prophet and New Testament apostles and how the cessationists would group those two together. Do you follow that line of thinking? Um, I think that's an important one. Okay, and then they would hold a third uh, line of argument as to why some Christians would believe that the gifts continue and get your questions ready because we're going to pause after this before we get into some pastoral reflections. And I think this is a compelling argument, is that they would look that there are certainly instances, because remember one of the big arguments of the cessationist point of view is that the gifts, the miraculous gifts primarily came through the hands of the apostles. But there are instances in the New Testament where we see that miracles and powerful things came through the hands of others that were not apostles, like Stephen in Acts chapter 6, Philip in Acts 8, just unnamed anonymous Christians in Galatians 3, 5, and then Corinthians generally in the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, verses 10 and 28. And so I think that that is, that is a strong argument in the case of continuationism that sort of undermines a little bit of the argument of cessationism that uh, the gifts come through the hands of the apostles and all are now are no longer necessary because the apostles have died. Okay, so that's the major arguments. Now, there are many more nuances, but those are the major arguments for the, for the cessationist perspective and the continuationist perspective. Any questions at this point? There's got to be a few. Yes, let's get, let's get um, microphones in because we're recording this. Right, Brenda, right here, raise your hand and then Jeff's got a question. Uh, 
So I don't, I guess I don't understand the, um, I don't really know what an apostle does, but I, I guess when you continue on in Ephesians, um, it talks about how he's going to reveal some um, by the Holy Spirit to apostles and prophets. So what is, I guess, what is he talking about? Then I don't. Yeah. So if you go um, in verse chapter three, because mm-hmm. it's um, talking about in Ephesians, yeah. like the reconciliation of the Jews and the Gentiles, mm-hmm. and then the mysteries, and so that mystery. That's always I've always wondered right. that. So when you read this, so Ephesians chapter three, verse four, when you read this, well, let me just start in verse one. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. And what is this mystery? Well, this mystery is the mystery of the gospel that, that uh, really hearkening all the way back to God's promise to Abraham that through you, Abraham, I will create a people that through you I will bless all the peoples of the earth. And now Christ has come for all, for whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord. And that mystery is explained back up in the first part of chapter 2, where Paul says, this is the gospel. You were all humanity. You're dead in your sins. And now there was a dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And in the gospel, Jesus has broken down the middle wall of hostility between God and man and Jew and Gentile. And now... There is one new man in Christ Jesus. In other words, God is wanting to redeem all of creation, all of whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord to himself. That's the mystery. And that mystery is revealed particularly to, firstly, to the Jewish apostles who become the preachers of this great mystery now revealed uh, so don't, when, we, when you think of mystery, don't think of Sherlock Holmes, of something that you know, we still got to figure out. If we keep reading our Bible, there will be some Da Vinci Code that we can figure out and all this goofy stuff. Don't think of that term. This mystery has now been revealed in the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and giving of the Spirit of Christ, and it is the gospel that he has created one new man through his work. He's redeemed man to, God to man, and man to man through the gospel. And now these Jewish apostles have this mystery revealed to them and they're preaching this. Now the message is not obey the law, be a Jew, get circumcised, eat kosher foods, and know the festivals. Now the message is whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord to the Jew first and to the Greek, trust in the name of the Lord. And then he's saying that that in verse 5, where you rightly see another grouping of, he says that this mystery has been revealed as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So he's just grouping these two things, two two groups of people together. Good question. Does that help? Yeah. And so remember, apostles are a one-time class of people who were the 12 disciples plus a few others that are added in the rest of the New Testament, Paul, Barnabas, James, Jude, um, and they had a special one-time authority. Now, some of you may have translations of the Bible where the word apostle is used like they were apostles of the church, and I think that that word is better rendered in those situations, a few instances in Acts, as messengers of the church, because literally the word apostle means sent ones. And those 12, plus Paul, plus a few others in the New Testament, are especially sent by Jesus to found the New Testament church and be the ones through whom the Bible came. 
And then we see, as the gospel is advancing decades on into the New Testament era in the first century, that churches would send out missionaries, same Greek word, sending out apostles. But what's in view there, if you have a translation of the Bible that talks about apostles of the churches being sent by the church at Corinth or whatever, it's not talking about this one-time class of people called the apostles. So all the apostles are dead. And they had a one-time special authority. And as the argument goes, so are the prophets. And so they're, yeah. Okay, any other questions? J.D. Jefferson Davis, son of the South. Okay, so the question I had, so I'm what I like to call a reactionist. Yeah, me too. Oh, you like that one? Did you steal it from me? (laughs) So the, I'm a reactionist. I grew up in a, in a, uh, Pentecostal church, uh-huh. uh, early years. So I guess my, my question is more of an observation with a question attached. So I know from being a part of a couple of different um, Pentecostal churches, the, the terms prophet and apostle mm-hmm. are used, I guess, colloquially instead of meaning the same thing in the Old Testament. Yeah. I know prophecy in the New Testament means more of edification and building up of yes. the church and its body. Yes. I see a lot of times that being used with prophet and yes. prophetess. Yes. Not that I agree with it. Yes. But I see that it puts up a lot of barriers between denominations. Yep. And and kind of almost builds some some hate kind of yeah. culture yeah. between the two denominations. Yes. So I guess my question is how do we how do we kill those barriers and try to try to stop that, you know, culture of disdain between the two yeah. denominations and bring us closer to love as yeah. we're called? Well, that's a g- great question, JD, and I would just say that um what I want to kind of go back and bring out is is that and I'm speaking in generalizations here that the cessationist means a little something different when they use the word prophet or prophecy than the continuationist, okay? The cessationist, when they say the word prophet, they're thinking of a special one-time authority. And they would look at Ephesians 2, verse 20, and say, ah, that particular office has ceased. The continuationist would say, okay, I would agree with that, but I see in 1 Corinthians 14 where there's these people in the Corinthian church that are speaking these words that Paul calls prophecy, and they are being judged and weighed. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul's saying, uh, don't despise these prophecies, but test them. And then there's this cat named Agabus in Acts chapter 21 who was apparently wrong. And so they're basically saying, they're using the same word to, dis- to, to speak about two different things. And they would say, no, we think that there are times in the New Testament when this word prophet um, or prophecy means something less than this sort of one-time special authority. Um, and they would see prophecy, getting into a little bit of a definition of prophecy, is not an authoritative word, but a spontaneous revelation of God that carries with it particular power to bring clarity to God's truth. Prophecy not meaning foretelling something in the future, like, like a you know, Christian Nostradamus, but more foretelling, bringing God's truth to bear in a situation in a particularly powerful and helpful sort of way. 
okay? The funny thing is, J.D., is that even people that would hold to a cessationist point of view, even though they may not call it prophecy, they actually think that what I just described is regularly should be happening in the life of the church. And so to get to your question, I think part of the, the, the tension is almost a little bit of, some, some of it's semantics. And then quite frankly, remember my fourth a point about how many cessationists are reacting to the excessiveness and the silliness of many people in the sort of charismatic world. I think a lot of people are reacting, overreacting to that. And quite frankly, that I think many people, and I say this humbly, although I'll tell you, I, I lean towards the continuationist perspective, very humbly, open and cautious perspective on that, is that I think that many people in the continuationist Pentecostal charismatic wing of the church tend to be, and I, I hear me, hear my heart on this, they tend to be people who are less precise theologically, and they therefore will sort of throw out words like apostle and prophecy, and it becomes a trigger for somebody over on this side, and they say, whoa, what do you mean by that? And then they, people start talking over each other, and they're not really hearing each other, and then people are reacting to a lot of the word faith goofiness that's on TBN, and it becomes, yeah, it becomes just a very unhelpful thing. And so to answer your question, I think that, you know, what can we do? We can't go around to everybody and say, hey, be better, be nice. I mean, it's kind of the guy. We just, what can we do? We can seek to be biblical, humble, gracious Christians, wherever we may lay on this, uh, fall on this, 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 this discussion, and really be charitable towards people who maybe disagree with us. And when appropriate, when people are using words sloppily, like prophecy and a prophet and apostle, I think we, you know, we don't hammer them and write them off as, you know, weirdos. I think we, as the Lord gives us opportunity in conversation to, you know, maybe guide them into a maybe better, precise, biblical explanation of what's going on there. And, and I think even if you're a continuationist, you, 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 I think you need to think, you need to speak precisely about these things because I think that's the way the Bible speaks about it. Does that, does that help a little bit? Yeah, it's a good question. Dr. Fott. Let's get a microphone. Get, give it, there you go. So this is probably, I'm jumping right into what you're just talking about. Yeah. But my biggest concern about the continuationists, if they use these scriptures, like in your little number two there, is that it runs, to me, it runs the risk of, of basically saying that God does not hold the position of prophet as being the same anymore. Like before, if a prophet said something yeah. and it didn't come to pass, you take him out and stone him because he did not speak uh, by me and that kind of thing. And so that was the, that's the problem I have. Like, for example, I can see where they try to get that out of, like, the yeah. Agabus's uh, yeah. uh, prophecy, but actually he was spot on if you look at it from God's perspective. For example... We all know that the Romans killed Jesus, but who did Peter and John say and, and Stephen yeah. say killed him? Yeah. I mean, they, they looked directly at the leading Jews and said, you have been the betrayers and murderers of him. Yeah. Well, but even, even without that Agabus example, I don't think you need that Ag Ab Agabus example in Acts 21 for the continuationist perspective. They would point to 1 Corinthians 14 and 
1 Thessalonians 5. So, I mean, I see what you're saying, but, but there's more to it than just Agabus. But I would say that I would, you know, when they talk about weighing uh, and holding to that which is good, well, we're doing that right now. Yes. And, you know, I mean, yeah, that's what we're right. doing. And so the, so the cessationist rejoinder to that argument would be, well, there's a, there's a weighing even of the Old Testament. So, yes, you're right. But here's what I want to say, John, is that you've hit on the, you've hit on one of the consequences of Genesis 3. God-fearing, earnest Christians. Our, our problem with interpreting the Bible is not on God's end, that he has not communicated clearly. We, we see through a mirror dimly, as he says in verse So we don't see things. We, there are God-fearing, earnest, fruitful, Jesus-loving Christians who disagree on a whole host of things in the Bible, and this is one of them. And so who's right? I don't know. And it's not because God hasn't been clear. It's because we are, we, 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 we are very limited in our ability to understand some of these difficult issues. I, I agree. The thing I'm really trying to say is I, I hesitate to say God is different. That's, that's the thing. No, well, I don't but, want God to think. Right. No, clearly. No, Hebrews, I mean, he's, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, but I don't think that this is, the continuationists would say that God is different. They would say that what is, what is meant by an Old Testament prophet and is what meant by the gift of prophecy in the New Testament is two different things. They're saying that you're comparing apples to oranges there. That's what they would be saying. You may disagree with that argument, but that, that's, that's what they were saying. They're not saying that God has changed. They're saying that the function of that particular group of people is different. Yes, Brenda. I think that God's been just recently really putting on my heart is, you know, we think, talk about all the gifts and this and that and just how he really encourages us that the greatest of all these gifts and is love and seeking mm-hmm. out how to love and they were asking like how do we bridge the two together and I yeah. think just with everything is just really seeking um, to love supernaturally the way God loves us and yeah. how he is patient and when we come with these yes. questions and disagreements just yeah. um, just love is yeah. cast yeah. out all fear and yep. we yep. can grow from there yeah. so and, then, and Brenda I think that's precisely why by the Holy Spirit he inspired Paul to write, to sandwich 1 Corinthians 13 in the middle of 12 and 14 in this contentious discussion about the operation of gifts in the Corinthian church. If you had 1 Corinthians 13 read at your wedding, I think that's wonderful, and I'm not trying to wreck you. I think that's wonderful. But 1 Corinthians 13 is not, the, the context there is not marital love. It's exactly what you said, Brenda. It's love in the church, in the context of theological disunity or disagreements. So, absolutely agree with that. One or two more questions before we finish up. In the back, who do we got there? I can't see. Is that Brianne Womack? Hello. Is that you, um, Brianne? Yeah. yeah, that's me. Whose husband just got back from Africa where he was swimming with great white sharks and taking pictures of r- mother rhinoceroses with baby rhinoceroses. 20 yards away. And he outside is still alive. Yes, he's crazy. Praise God. <laughs> but he loves it. Yeah, um, and he's crazy. So my question is this. Last week's message, you talked about how there's, um, you touched on tongues and how mm-hmm. there's different, two different types of tongues. Mm-hmm. I would love for you to explain yeah. the two different types and how you feel about each one. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I, I started yeah. my walk in a Pentecostal church. Yeah. And I have seen 
tongues completely misused and I have seen people clearly faking it, but I've also seen the opposite yeah. and I've experienced tongues. Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard. Yeah, to... that's a great question. I'm going to answer it briefly. Okay. That'll be the last question that I'm going to finish it up. And then we're going to talk more about it next week. Okay, okay. good. Okay. Thank you. So I'm going to answer it right now and I'll probably re-answer it next week because I want to zero in on tongues a little bit next week when we talk about what we're going to go back through that list and really look at what the gifts are. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the tongues that happened there, and everybody believes that tongues happened in the history of the church. I mean, it's in the Bible. The tongues that happened there were clearly known human languages that the speakers, that were not known to the speakers, but there was a whole bunch of ethnic groups gathered for the Feast of Pentecost, and these 120 Jewish believers of Jesus spoke in other languages that they did not know that these native speakers heard their own languages being expounded by these Jews where they were speaking about the wonderful works of God. And that was known human languages, unknown to the speaker, and became a wonderful evangelistic witness to those assembled on the day of Pentecost. Many people think that if that the gift of tongues, that is it, that the gift of tongues is known human other languages that are not known to the speaker. Others, most continuationists, not all, but most continuationists would point to where Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says that if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And they would say, aha, he's talking about not just the tongues of men but the tongues of angels. So maybe they would see that Paul introduces another category of tongues at that point, that you have known human languages, languages maybe not known by the speaker in a miraculous evangelistic sort of way that we see in Acts 2. But then we have these kind of heavenly languages or maybe what is more commonly called prayer languages. And then they would point, of course, uh, cessationists would disagree there and they would say, no, Paul was just speaking sort of, um, what's the word, just sort of uh, like categorically, not speaking specifically about that. They would disagree with what I just said. And then they would also look at like 1 Corinthians 14, where in verse 4 it says, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, seeming to indicate that there's this private prayer language experience with tongues, that there is a personal aspect to this prayer language and that it doesn't necessarily need to operate in this sort of public evangelistic sort of way. And so uh, there's two different views on that. Some view that tongues is always a known human language, just not known to the speaker, and it's always going to generally be in an evangelistic sort of mission sort of context. Another would say, no, it also includes uh, from these verses in 1 Corinthians 14 and 13, like a, a heavenly, not human language, but a real sort of heavenly language that's benefiting the hearer, even, I mean, the speaker, even though they don't understand it. Brian, I've read a lot on this. I, I just, I, there are so many super wicked smart cats that are on both sides of this. I just, I don't know. I mean, and there's just not a lot of agreement. It seems to be that most continuationists and we're talking about respected theologians, Wayne Grudem, Don Carson, John Piper, and many others, Sam Storms, uh, do hold that they believe that there is the possibility that there's this sort of heavenly language. And uh, virtually all of those that would be in the cessationist camp would think that what's going on in tongues, not only in Acts, but also in 1 Corinthians, is, is um, just known human languages. I don't know.
I, I mean, I can't, I, what I'm saying is, I can't point to a scripture that says definitively this. You have a, you got the mic? Yeah. Is there proof scripturally that the tongues, meaning a known human language, yeah. is dead? Well, um, yeah, so, so uh, um, I, think, I think the cessationists would say yes. They would say, back, go back to the front page there, under Ephesians 2, the last bullet point, they would say interpreted tongues are essentially equivalent to prophecy in the New Testament, and since prophecy has ended, so have tongues. And so they would make the case that in 1 Corinthians 14, there seems to be an equality of status between a prophetic word in the church in Corinth, which everybody understands. And then Paul says, if there's going to be a tongue spoken, it doesn't build up the church, so let that tongue be interpreted. And so the cessationist perspective would say, that seems to be an equivalent gift, a prophetic word in the language that we know and a tongue in a language that we don't know interpreted into a language we don't know. They seem to be corollary gifts. And as the argument goes from the cessationist point of view, they would say since this gift of prophecy has gone away, binding it up with the word apostles as they group it together in Ephesians 2, it would seem to follow that the gift of tongues has gone away as well. So from the cessationist perspective, they would say, yes, there's biblical evidence that tongues have gone away. From the continuationist perspective, they would say, no, you're making too tight of an argument between prophecy and the authority of the apostles, which we've just kind of been talking about. And they would say, no, tongues and prophecy are of a much lesser authority than the speech of the apostles. And it is a Authority that it is, it's, a, it's a type of spoken word that needs to be weighed back to what John was saying could be wrong And so it still should be operative in and they would also bring in historical arguments. They would say that although Certainly after the New Testament era the gifts of the Spirit really took a severe drop as far as um, Frequency in the history of the church. There is I think evidence that reports of gifts of the Spirit and tongues to some degree do continue in little pockets of the church Throughout church history, I think that is documented. Cessationists would say, but all those groups were fringe groups, and a lot of them were heretics, but whatever. So to answer, to, to answer your question, Brianne, it depends on what you believe. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the crux of the argument. Cessationists would say, yes, tongues have ceased. And, continue, and continuation would say, no, they haven't. I don't think either arguments are airtight. And, yeah. And even the really smart cats, like Tom Schreiner and Richard Gaffin and others, I mean, they, they're clear about, and these are very well-respected New Testament scholars who are super, super smart dudes. They say, you know, they admit that these are nuanced arguments. Yeah. Yeah. I know that's disappointing, Brianna. I know I want more clarity, too. I do, I do. Yeah, yeah. Does that help a little bit? Yeah. Okay, let's, in, let's finish it up. And if you've got any more questions, I want to be, um, I'm, I'm doing a little bit better on time. We'll end. So just a couple pastoral reflections on humility and unity. I think, Brenda, you were hitting on this. For some strange reason, I think the American church makes a much bigger deal about this than 
we make a much, this is a, this is like a theological battle in America that it just isn't as much in other parts of the world. And I think it's because we are prone to sensationalism. And I, and I just think we, we need to, we need to just be humble. I think if, look, there are wonderfully fruitful Christians on both sides, okay? Wonderfully fruitful Christians on both sides that agree on a whole host of things. I mean, I have theological heroes on both sides. Um, another pastoral reflection is, is that um, people that um, have a gift or don't have a gift, it's not necessarily... Jeff, did you have a question? I forget. You had a question a while ago. We totally... No, no. You, we're getting to your question. What's your question? I totally... What's your... I'm sorry, because so, I... <laughs> so, going to the first point... Yeah, your voice is really loud. Hello. Bad. Hello. Yeah. I'm sorry, I totally forgot about getting back to you, brother. No, it's okay. Going back to the first point, uh, when it talks about the perfect referring to Christ, I don't, yeah. I don't really, uh, to me, that's kind of an example of how people can kind of take a, a, a verse and kind of mold it into whatever argument they want it to be. Um, whenever the Bible speaks about God or Christ in any way, it, it always capitalizes that, that word. Well, not necessarily. Not necessarily. So, so let's read on. Let's look at the context of First Corinthians, throw First Corinthians 3, 13, verse 8 through 12 up there. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes... And perfect may there be referring more to just Christ, to the end state. In other words, perfection in us, when we're done with our sanctification. When the perfect comes, so we know that whatever's going to pass away is going to pass away in this temporal time. When perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish childish ways. Verse 12 is a key that gives us a little bit more context on verse 10. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then... And so I think the then is very connected to the when of chapter of, of verse 10. So I think the when, I mean, the then, when in verse 10, when the perfect comes, is very much connected to the then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. See, to me, when I read this, I, I think more of when I die. Uh, when it talks about well, love quit, never yeah. ends, love, love is something you carry on with you. Prophecies come and go. Yeah. They'll, they'll be fulfilled. Uh, tongues, you'll die, obviously. Yeah. Your tongue won't move anymore. Yeah. Uh, yep. I, I just don't. Yeah, maybe so. I mean, that's it, but maybe so. Um, that's what but I, 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 the, that's the, 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 the overwhelming majority of kind of people in the history of the church have kind of leaned towards seeing this as the return of Christ. But even without that text, um, that's really not a text that even is really a major player in this argument. So you may have a point there. Yeah, you may have a point. But I will say that there are times when, when the event of the perusia, the, the, the return of Christ, is not necessarily capitalized. So I know what you're saying, and that's a good thought. That's a good key, but more we could say about that. Thanks for yeah, forgetting. Yeah, good. I'm sorry I forgot about you. I was thinking about humility and unity, and I thought I might have made you mad. So I needed to go back. Okay, on spiritual maturity. So, so, so spiritual gifts are not necessarily a marker of spiritual maturity. I think we need to factor in, too, that there are different personality types in the church, Right? Some people are introverted and quiet, and some people are outgoing and extroverted. And sometimes it sort of falls along to some degree personality lines, and they look 
the, pers- the people that are really extroverted look at the people that are more introverted and they sort of cast aspersions on them as those who are not really pursuing all that God has for them. And the people that are introverted look at those that are extroverted and say, oh, they're just driven by emotion. And come on, that's not Christian unity and considering one another better than ourselves. And then number four there, we'll get deeper into that as Brianne uh, asks questions. I don't have time to do that. We're going to get into that next week. We're going to look really specifically on um, the gift of prophecy and of tongues. One last quote from a little guy I like to call John Calvin, the great French reformer commenting on 1 Corinthians 14. I think this is true. Today we see, and he was reading 1 Corinthians 14, lamenting the fact that God didn't seem to move in quite the same way that he moved in the New Testament. And I think Calvin was a cessationist. So, but this quote is going to sound like he's a continuationist. But let that factor in that regardless of what you believe about the operation of the gifts, it doesn't seem like God does quite the miracles in abundance that he did in, through the hands of the apostles. What are we to make of that? I don't know. Calvin says, Today we see our own slender resources, our poverty, in fact, spiritually speaking. But this is undoubtedly the punishment we deserve as the reward for our ingratitude. For God's riches are not exhausted, nor has his liberality grown less. But we are not worthy of his largesse or capable of receiving all that he generously gives. And he goes on to say, meaning that we are not seeking him. We are not passionately pursuing him like we should. It's not that God is sort of done. It's that his culture advances. We're not, 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 that's not an argument for or against gifts. I'm just saying I think that that spiritual principle uh, seems to be true, certainly in America in today. Um, but then I could also make the point that, hey, God is gracious despite our sin, right? So praise God for a generous God. So let's not beat ourselves up too much spiritually. And, you know, Calvin, as much as I love him, every picture you see of him painted, not picture, but picture of uh, a painting of him, he's always got a frown on his face. So anyway, lighten up a little bit, Johnny boy. But um, let's be, let's be um, chastened by his perspective. Now let me pray. Lord, thank you for these brothers and sisters. Pray that this has been helpful. Help us to be generous towards those that we may see differently. Let's walk in humility towards one another. Let us consider one another better than ourselves. And may a beautiful aroma of Christ emanate from this body as we pursue all that you are with all that we have for the glory of the name of Jesus, for the good of the church, for the salvation of the lost. Lord, conform us more into the image of Christ. Thank you for these friends. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, see you next week.